This week on The Elucidators, Decoding Global News, we're going to discuss a big, symbolic diplomatic move that occurred in the Middle East last week, the normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, two countries that have been in a formal state of hostilities for decades, in one of the few successes the Trump administration can claim for its foreign policy. It looks like the Arabs and Israelis may be putting aside their long-standing enmity to confront the nascent Iranian threat. We're also going to delve into the situation in Belarus, which might just be on the brink of a democratic revolution after a fixed election. And we'll also talk about how an Arctic heat wave is causing scientists to bump up their timelines for climate change, and not in a good way. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to support the show, the best ways to do so are to recommend us on social media or to write us a review on your podcast app. All right, let's drop some international relations knowledge with a quickness. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally. And guess what? There's nobody with me this week. I'm flying solo because my normal co-host and producer Pete Newsom is stranded in Northern California. We're going to miss you. Uh, but I am going to do my best solo hosting for the first time. So everybody, please bear with me. We're going to see how this goes with the no Pete and no Sumi or anybody else that we've gotten on the show to co-host or anything like that. The good news is that I just came off a short, sweet vacation, 48 hours in Santa Barbara wine country, where I learned quite a bit about viticulture and its interaction with geology. Very interesting stuff. I also learned how wine subscriptions or wine clubs work at boutique wineries because we came home with three of them, along with what feels like several dozen bottles of the finest reds and whites from the Santa Inez Valley. Super effective sales tactics, especially after what they call tasting. So that was interesting, too. So with all of that in mind, we're going to get to our first story, which is last Thursday... On August 13th, President Donald Trump announced that the United Arab Emirates had agreed to full normalization of relations with Israel in exchange for Israel not proceeding with the annexation of the Israeli settler territories in the West Bank. Now, this is a big deal because the United Arab Emirates now joins only two other Arab countries to have normal diplomatic relations with Israel in Israel's entire over 70-year history. That being Egypt, which normalized relations in 1979, and Jordan, which did so in 1994. Quoth Trump, Now that the ice has been broken, I expect more Arab and Muslim countries will follow the UAE's lead. And apparently this has been uh, part of Jared Kushner's initiative as a larger part of his strategy for the Middle East, or the Trump administration strategy for the Middle East. Kushner has been Trump's point man on Middle East policy, and apparently was the main intermediary for this deal, which he's calling the Abraham Accord. Abraham being, of course, the common father or ancestor to the three great monotheistic faiths coming out of the the Middle East, those being Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. The idea being... 
hey, we can all get along. We all have the same original father in the form of Abraham, right? We're not there yet, but maybe this is a good first step. What does this mean? It means that the two countries can now cooperate more formally across a wide range of areas, starting with simple stuff like opening embassies in each other's capitals and allowing direct flights between countries and moving from there into more complex arrangements, investing in one another's economies, sharing technology, and most importantly, cooperation across the security realm. And we'll explain why that's probably the most important aspect of this in a little bit. First, I want to get into a quick history of Arab-Israeli relations. And we've run over this before on the show, but I think it's important to go back over it to place this in context so everybody understands why this is potentially such a big deal. Now, if you write emails professionally, there's an expression called TL semicolon DR, which stands for too long didn't read. So for this next section, if you prefer to just skip ahead, too long didn't read. The quick summary is, man, Arab-Israeli relations have been rough, extremely rough. There have been four major Arab-Israeli wars, the first starting immediately after the establishment of Israel in 1948. The last came in 1973. Israel has won all of them. So there's been basically one big Arab-Israeli war for the first four decades of Israel's existence. 48, then the 50s, then the 67, and finally in 73. The most important war was in 1967, when Israel crushed the combined Arab armies of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan in six days, not a very long time, and occupied a lot of Arab territory, including the Palestinian areas of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, Israel was, of course, formed out of the Palestinian mandate, uh, a colonial area that had been administered by the United Kingdom. Upon Israel's founding in 1948, they took over a lot of the Palestinian territories because they were co-occupying the Palestinian land, and they gave them the boot during that first founding war of Israel in 48. The Palestinians ended up in two enclaves, the West Bank uh, of the Jordan River near Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip on the Mediterranean. And then... Two wars later, Israel took those two enclaves over as well because they were sick of having a surprise warfare declared upon them and decided that they needed more strategic depth. Uh, they also took over the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights from Egypt and Syria, respectively. But the West Bank and the Gaza Strip were full of many Palestinians that the Israelis now basically had responsibility over. And fast forward from there, 30 years, we have the 1993 to 1995 Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, basically Yasser Arafat's uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, which tied broader Arab recognition of Israel to Israel's return to the 1967 borders. So again, that would mean exiting those Palestinian territories of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and allowing some form of Palestinian statehood. That's what the Oslo Accords were working towards. It was this sort of land for peace type of situation where the Israelis would withdraw as they became more confident that the PLO and the Palestinians more generally were not interested in attacking Israel or allowing Arab armies to attack through those territories, thereby establishing Israeli security 
over the long haul. This policy is called the two-state solution. Those two states being, of course, Israel and Palestine, being independent, separate, and living in peace and harmony alongside one another. And this idea has been the basis of U.S. policy on Israel-Palestine up until the Trump administration, basically. Here's the problem. After 1967, Israeli settlers founded new towns throughout formerly Arab lands, including in areas of the West Bank that are supposed to belong to the Palestinians. And Israeli settlers are basically exactly what they sound like. They're generally far-right politically, and they go into these lands they believe are part of Israel's biblical mandate and set up shop. They're usually heavily armed, pretty interested in Judaism and having large families and reclaiming the Holy Land for Israel. These West Bank settlements in particular have grown very rapidly in the past few decades and now number about 500,000 people in population, which is a pretty substantial fraction of all the people in Israel, especially all the Jews in Israel, because there are more than just Jews. There's also Israeli Arabs. Israel's total population is somewhere between 9 and 10 million, and we're talking about 500,000 settlers who are now outside of Israel's formal borders in these territories that are supposed to belong to Palestine. Now, Israel evacuated settlements from the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip in the past, but those settlements were much smaller in terms of the number of settlers who actually live there. It was politically a lot more tenable to move them back inside of Israel's borders. Meanwhile, Israel's right wing demands formal annexation of these settlements to Israel, while Palestinians and Arabs decry them as illegal, and also a lot of Europeans and other international observers as well. The United States, to this point, has never allowed Israel to annex the settlements because this would be a massive provocation. It would be basically saying, we are allowing you to take over these areas which were gained in a war the 67 war, which admittedly was a defensive war, but it was still gained through violence. And that is not supposed to happen in the post-World War II world. That is not, not how we're supposed to uh, solve our differences. It should be done through diplomacy. And if Israel is going to take over those territories, it needs to be part of a diplomatic deal. It cannot be done unilaterally. That has been the policy to this point. But the Trump administration's plan, which we talked about on this show, was unveiled earlier this year, and it formally authorized unilateral Israeli annexation for the first time, basically saying that it's time to acknowledge the reality of the situation as exists on the ground. The Trump administration's logic went something like this. Fact is, nobody can reverse Israeli settlement of the West Bank, including Israel. There's half a million settlers now, and these guys don't want to be moved back inside Israel. They want Israel to come meet them and absorb them. Back to the Trump deal. In exchange for agreeing to annexation, the Palestinians would get a much smaller, many would say non-viable, state along with U.S. investment and financial help. This was a non-starter with the Palestinians, obviously, because the Palestinians had been led to believe for decades that they would be able to get more or less the entirety of the West Bank as the foundation of their new state. And in addition, the deal comes after Trump did a lot of other anti-Palestinian things. For instance, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which is a, sort of a, a divided city between Palestinian and Israeli control. In reality, Israel controls almost the entirety of Jerusalem. And 
the Trump administration has also largely defunded the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian leadership has said that the United States is no longer an honest broker in this peace process between Palestine and Israel, and I cannot possibly blame them for saying that. Moving into questions about this deal between the UAE and Israel, the biggest question is, why do it now? And the answer is simply, there's a threat emanating from Iran, again, which we've talked about on the show in the form of adventurism and increasing aggression across the Middle East, such that all major Arab countries are now much more worried about Iran than they are about Israel. And we've got things like the Saudi refinery strike last year. We have Iran being active in the Yemeni civil war, threatening the Arabian Peninsula's southern flank. We have Iran and Hezbollah active in the Syrian civil war. And Iran now dominating Iraq now that the United States has decreased its troop presence. Syria and Iraq have always been considered part of the Arab heartland, and Iran is dominating both of them. And on top of this, we now have the situation in Lebanon, whereby Hezbollah is presiding over a destabilized country in the wake of the Beirut explosions a few weeks ago. Here's the thing. It's an open secret that the UAE and Israel have been collaborating for years, particularly in the realm of security. The Mossad had been helping the United Arab Emirates, which is a close neighbor to Iran, with intelligence gathering and things like this, because Israel considered them an ally before formalization. But bringing it out in the open improves deterrence, because it formalizes the arrangement for everybody to see and basically says, hey, we're going to start working together. And we're not afraid to show it anymore. We're making this official. And that means that there would be a reputational cost to either side forsaking the other in the event of Iranian aggression. That's generally how alliances work from an international relations perspective in terms of theory. Now, here's the thing. The UAE and Iran are not necessarily bitter enemies like Israel and Iran. In fact, they're trade partners, and the UAE sits right across the Strait of Hormuz from Iran. They're right in the line of fire if Iran were to do anything. Abu Dhabi is not very far away from Iran at all. So the Emirates is not interested in rupturing the relationship with Iran entirely, but they are interested in maintaining their independence. They feel very strongly about that, and they don't want to be dominated by Iranian military power. And having uh, a deal with Israel in UAA's back pocket is a big deal because Israel is probably the strongest military power remaining in the Middle East now that the United States is taking its ball and going home. Another reason for this to happen now is that, frankly, the Palestinians are not as relevant as they used to be. When this deal was announced, Iran and Palestine jointly accused the UAE of abandoning the Palestinians, which is basically accurate. So I asked friend of the show, Professor Galen Jackson, about this, and he said that Arab leaders, frankly, perceive the Palestinians as a lost cause at this point. The Israel-United States tandem is simply too powerful to reverse the situation on the ground, which is that Israel has dominated the Palestinians, 
and basically bottled them up in such a way that they have won the multi-decade insurgency. They have the Palestinians completely under control. And on top of this, the Arabs feel like they need American and Israeli protection at this point anyway. There's no real reason to think that Israel will ever meet Palestinian demands. And a bad deal is better than no deal. That's basically what uh, the UAE is thinking. It's time to acknowledge reality. And I think that Jared Kushner put this in. (laughs) He actually said that in in, uh, no uncertain terms. Uh, This deal acknowledges the reality on the ground, which is that Israel has effectively won this war. And it is time to formalize that and move on. To be clear, not everybody agrees with this, especially not the Palestinians and their allies, but the guys with the guns see it as a fait accompli. On top of this, for the sort of Arab monarchies, the conservative monarchies, the Arab Spring revolutions of about a decade ago demonstrated that most younger Arabs, the quote-unquote Arab street, care more about good governance and democracy than they do about the Palestinians. To be clear, they still don't have good governance or democracy in places like the UAE or Saudi Arabia, but they're much more focused on their own destinies than this sort of pan-Arab dream of the 20th century, which included Palestine being liberated by Arab armies. They tried to do that four times. It didn't work. And the next generation is like, it sucks that the Palestinians are still living under occupation. But frankly, we want our own countries to reform and modernize, and we can't help them. That's actually the focus for the Arab street. All of that said, annexation of the territories might be a bridge too far. So the UAE can claim some credit. They can say, hey, yes, we are offering recognition to Israel on the condition that they halt annexation, which... They should get some Arab street cred for, notwithstanding what the Palestinians and Iranians have said about it, because nobody wants the Israelis to annex these territories, including perhaps the Israelis themselves. That's right. Israel may not actually want to annex the settlements, and this deal is a pretty nice pretext not to. So here's the deal with that. Israel's longtime prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been involved in Israeli politics for decades. He's been around since the 90s. And he's still somehow in charge of Israel, despite having been indicted for corruption, forced into a unity government with his rival Benny Gantz, and screwing up Israel's COVID response by reopening schools too quickly. Uh, Israel had control of the virus and then reopened schools and the virus blew up again. He has been subject to protests for his handling of Uh, the virus, the economy, and also for dodging his corruption trial, which always seems to recede into the distance. (laughs) It's almost incredible that he's still hanging on to power, but he managed to maneuver Gantz into a power-sharing agreement and remain prime minister, even though he technically lost the last election in Israel, which is crazy. He ran for re-election, promising annexation of these territories, which he could have started on July 1st. But his government balked when the day came, claiming that more planning was needed. The process has been weirdly difficult from the Israeli side because the country is actually really badly divided on this issue. The entirety of the Israeli left, which Netanyahu generally ignores, 
does not want annexation. It wants a two-state solution with a viable Palestinian state. And it wants Israel to normalize relations with that Palestinian state alongside the dream of the 90s, the, the Oslo Accords. That's what the left wants. But even on Netanyahu's right flank, he has problems. Right-wing extremists are aghast that Israel would give the Palestinians any kind of state under any circumstances, because they have said, we have basically a biblical claim from thousands of years ago to all of this territory within the historical kingdom of Israel, the ancient kingdom of Israel, which of course includes the West Bank and Gaza Strip. We don't need to give them anything. And besides, we can't trust them because they've been involved in terrorism against Israelis for many years. Meanwhile, Benny Gantz, who is the guy who's in that coalition government with Netanyahu, won't agree to any plan until the COVID crisis is under control. And the White House has demanded that Netanyahu get Gantz's go-ahead before proceeding, because it would look really bad if, for instance, Netanyahu and Gantz were divided, Netanyahu proceeded, and then Gantz won power at some point in the future and reversed course on the deal. The White House really doesn't want that to happen. So they need at least the picture of a united front from this government to be able to proceed. In addition, annexation would cause Israel major diplomatic headaches. Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, recently wrote a full-page editorial in a major Israeli newspaper warning them not to proceed. <laughs> like, in no uncertain terms, do not do this. It's a big mistake for the future of your country. Don't do it. And that's the uh, prime minister of the UK, which remains a, an important Western ally of, of Israel. Furthermore, on top of that, Joe Biden, should he win election this year in November, has said that he will disallow annexation. So the window is closing here. If, in fact, Netanyahu does not actually want to annex the territories, which seems more and more likely because of all the problems it would cause, it seems like he, he just said he did in order to get the right-wingers on board for the election. He only may have to hold out until November. So we can expect the studies to proceed for several more months while the election situation in the United States becomes more clear. A final way to interpret this move is as a favor for Trump close to the 2020 election. Fact is that Trump doesn't have that many tangible achievements to this point. So Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Zayed, who is uh, the sheikh of the UAE, are political allies of Trump's and Kushner's, and they wanted to give him one to advertise before the election. That's just a theory, but Trump has done a lot for Israel in particular, so it makes sense that one hand would, wa would wash the other, even if Netanyahu may actually have his fingers crossed behind his back, hoping that Biden ends up winning so that he doesn't have to go through with this annexation. <laughs> He'll have an excuse not to, but we'll see. So what comes next? Kushner and Trump have hinted that we should watch for additional Arab countries announcing similar deals with Israel. And Netanyahu and his friends in the Israeli Defense Forces, the defense establishment, have also started talking that we could see a lot more Arab countries fall into line very quickly. Saudi Arabia would be the biggest one to fall because it's the major Arab power economically and has formed the main center of gravity diplomatically for the region for a long time. But the United Arab Emirates 
is far from insignificant. It punches well above its weight, both economically and in military terms. In fact, it's been called Little Sparta for its activities in places like Yemen and elsewhere. And I think Israel regards it as a really nice sort of second tier place to to start off this initiative. And most importantly, now that the United States is exiting the Middle East, it has removed almost all of its troops from Syria. It's in the process of drawing down in Iraq and also in Afghanistan. The Middle East is starting to solidify into two camps. The first is this Arab-Israeli axis, which has only been possible because the Palestinian issue has faded into the background as the Iranian threat has loomed larger. On the other side, we have Iran actually forming an axis with Turkey, which you might not expect, but those two countries are governed by Islamic conservatives. Erdogan, who is Turkey's authoritarian president, is from a Islamist party. And he sees eye to eye with the the Islamic Republic of Iran, at least on some measures. And Turkey has also gotten into it with Israel over a bunch of different topics recently, including energy exploration in in the uh, eastern Mediterranean, in areas that are close to both Israel and uh, Turkey and are claimed by both countries. So it should be very interesting to see this new little miniature Cold War come into play between the Arabs and the Israelis, which nobody would have ever expected even a decade ago, and the Iranians and the Turks. Finally, and this is important, the Israel-Palestine peace process remains stuck at square zero. The Palestinians haven't participated in any of this, haven't agreed to anything, and are unlikely to talk to either the Trump administration or Netanyahu's government ever again. If it's going to be the case that all the Arab countries line up behind the UAE to join up with Israel at this point, I think we can reasonably expect the Palestinians to end up in the Iranian-Turkish camp. And if the Iranians and the Turks both decide to help the Palestinians in a real way, like militarily, that could spell big trouble for the Israelis. It would probably be in Israel's interest to try to meet the Palestinians somewhere in the middle and get them a reasonable state, but that would take more foresight than a victor in a civil war usually has. Okay, moving on to our second topic. Are we about to see a revolution in Belarus? This guy, Alexander Lukashenko, who has been called Europe's last dictator, has been in control of Belarus for the last 26 years, since 1994. And in a presidential election held on Sunday, August 9th, he claimed to have won 80% of the vote, while the main opposition candidate, Svetlana Sikaniskaya, was certified at 10%. Unsurprisingly, this vote was neither free nor fair, and Sikhaniskaya was estimated to have won 60 to 70% of the vote, if it had been counted correctly, which it was not. She only entered the race after her husband, who is a popular opposition figure who is running for president, was jailed by the regime. Ballots were stuffed such that 40% of the votes came in before polling stations actually opened, which, last time I checked, isn't supposed to be possible. I think that Belarus has been an autocracy for so long that these guys have forgotten how to fix an election, even remotely convincingly. (laughs) Anyway, after this vote held a week ago this past Sunday, massive protests ignited against the Lukashenko government. 
with hundreds of thousands of Belarusians in the streets demanding Lukashenko go. Security forces have been arresting and torturing the demonstrators, and we've seen lots of cell phone footage of some pretty nasty stuff in terms of being beaten to the ground, stepped on, herded into detention centers and marched around, and even worse stories than that. There have been close to 7,000 arrests. Meanwhile, Sveta, which is uh, what she goes by by, (laughs) for short, which is good for me because I can barely pronounce her name, has led to neighboring Lithuania, where she is in the process of setting up what kind of looks like a government in exile. She's calling it a transitional council. Uh, A couple quick facts on Belarus, because I don't think anybody knows anything about Belarus, including me. I had to look a lot of this stuff up. It is a landlocked Eastern European country between Russia, Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine, which is a tough neighborhood historically. A lot of those countries go in and out of existence over the decades and centuries, including during the 20th century. It's about the size of Kansas geographically, and it has 10 million people, which is three times more people than Kansas. And it's very urbanized, about 70% urban. So it was uh, when it was part of the Soviet Union, it formed part of its heavy industrial base, a lot of factories. However, its GDP is about 40% the size of Kansas, which means that the people living in Belarus are about 80% poorer than the average Kansan, something like that. Belarus achieved independence after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, but Lukashenko has continued many Soviet policies since he took over in 1994. There's still basically a command economy in place, largely in Belarus, meaning that the state owns all of these giant factories where they produce things like tractors and industrial fertilizer, stuff like that. And there's a huge secret police that's still called the KGB, which is a throwback. Not even the Russians still have the KGB, only the Belarusians. So we have this ruthless dictator who's uh, wielding the KGB on one side against hundreds of thousands of protesters on the other side. How is this going to play out? As of today, Wednesday, the 19th of August, protests are continuing. And in fact, by last Friday, the 14th, there was some evidence that security services were joining the protesters, although it's not clear how prevalent this is. Uh, A lot of soldiers and KGB members have been taking videos of themselves throwing their uniforms in the garbage and burning them while apologizing to the citizenry for their appalling behavior during this uprising. Meanwhile, Putin, who is uh, Lukashenko's neighbor, of course, has offered to support Lukashenko, quote unquote, against external threats. And of course, Lukashenko is claiming that the opposition protests are connected to foreign governments, as these guys always do. In a somewhat worrying trend, Russian state TV has started to compare Belarus 2020 to Ukraine 2014, drawing a parallel to the Ukrainian color revolution that kicked out a pro-Russian dictator at that time and installed the democracy. And we all know what happened after that. Putin intervened, took away the Crimea, and invaded eastern Ukraine, which is still in the hands of Russian irregular troops. That is a pretty serious threat to uh, Belarus's sovereignty. On the other hand, Lukashenko and Putin are not necessarily friends. In fact, they've had a pretty crappy relationship. Ever since Putin invaded uh, the Crimea, Lukashenko has been moving away from Russia and towards the EU looking for protection. 
So he is a, a bit of a fair weather friend to Putin, and Putin knows this as well. Meanwhile, I think that Lukashenko's future hinges on whether workers at those state-owned enterprises that I referenced earlier call a general strike or not. If they call a general strike, that's probably it for the dictator. And in fact, there are some strikers at these factories, but they have not reached critical mass yet. Only uh, a handful of workers have gone out on strike and protested because other bosses have threatened to fire them and they, they can't afford to be fired. So Belarus is teetering on the brink here. Meanwhile, Putin, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel have talked about Belarus in the last couple of days. Putin hasn't done anything to help Lukashenko directly, but he has demanded that the EU stay out of it, which, of course, the EU has not done. Today, the EU announced that it rejects the results of the vote and will sanction individuals responsible for repression and electoral fraud. So that is the EU throwing its hat into the Belarusian ring. And this dish just got a lot spicier with the EU on one side, basically on the side of the majority, Belarus's populace, it, it appears, and Vladimir Putin on the other side, who has apparently started maneuvering troops into place on Belarus's eastern border. So watch this space for developments in the near future. Putin obviously does not want new democracies on his border to be joining NATO and the European Union. That is uh, a bridge too far for him. So we're going to see what exactly he intends to do, if he is going to help prop up Lukashenko or step in after Lukashenko falls. It remains to be seen. Okay, let's move now to our third topic, the heat wave in the Arctic. That's right. The Arctic Circle is currently about 5 degrees Celsius, which is roughly 10 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than it's supposed to be this time of year. On June 20th, we measured the highest Arctic temperature ever, over 100 degrees on the Arctic Circle, which is completely insane. It's normal for temperatures to climb into the 70s in the Arctic during summertime, but 100 degrees, not so much. This is because the Arctic is actually warming three times faster than the rest of the world. So while the world at large has warmed about one degree centigrade since pre-industrial times, the Arctic is basically in the mid twos and headed towards three. And that's causing big issues to the tune of massive forest and peat fires in Siberia, Siberia being the gigantic rural Russian area in the east of Russia that is very sparsely populated, except by deer and bears. Siberia is mostly on fire, particularly the part in the Arctic Circle. Both forest fires, which we're familiar with here in California, especially right now, and peat fires, which burn underground and are a lot more difficult to detect. Scientists have found that these fires in the Arctic have released more CO2 into the atmosphere in June and July alone than in any complete fire season prior to 2020. So all of 2019, all of last year has been met and exceeded in terms of the amount of CO2 being burned into the atmosphere in Siberia and, and the Arctic in two months. In addition, Canada's last remaining ice shelf, the Milne ice shelf, split apart and fell into the ocean this summer. It was about the size of Washington, D.C., and now it is two different icebergs that are floating away. Greenland's ice sheet, which is basically next door to the Milne ice shelf, has melted to the point of no return, 
according to a new analysis by researchers from Ohio State University. This is the single biggest contributor to global sea level rise, is uh, Greenland melting. And when you take all of these things together, scientists characterize these issues as, quote-unquote, arriving 30 years earlier than anticipated. This was the kind of stuff we were supposed to be seeing in 2050, but we're now seeing it in 2020. And scientists now think that the Arctic could be ice-free in the summer by 2035, which was definitely not supposed to happen until the back half of this century. Just for context, the last time the Arctic was ice-free in the summer was 130,000 years ago, when temperatures were about 4 degrees Celsius warmer than they are today. So this makes sense. And it's this is not to say that this is all bad, because the Arctic is now open to ocean navigation, which makes shipping more efficient. The Russians in particular are actually happy about this, because they can get their natural resources, like natural gas and uh, certain types of metals, to market much easier from Siberia and the north part of the country. Ships can now go right through the Arctic Circle into the Pacific pretty easily. And that saves our transport costs. Yay, Russia. On the other hand, it poses some pretty serious issues for the rest of the world, in particular the Pacific Coast, where the hosts of this show live in California, because it appears that the jet stream is starting to break down. The jet stream is basically a gigantic uh, column of air that flows from west to east across North America, uh, from the Pacific to the Atlantic, and it is ordinarily driven by the difference in temperature between the Arctic and Pacific Oceans, and more specifically, the Arctic and the equator. And if the Arctic is way hotter than it's supposed to be, then that temperature difference is a lot lower, and the jet stream is a lot slower. And this has severe consequences for places like California, because the jet stream would ordinarily push hot weather out of the way faster. And instead, we are sitting here under something called a heat dome with 100 degree temperatures with no end in sight and fires burning everywhere, such that it is difficult to go outside right now. So all of this to say, this is really not good news. And we're going to have to figure out a way to mitigate the effects of this sooner rather than later, because this is going to be an irreversible change. Okay, so there you have it. That is the show for this week. Once again, I'm Steve Pally. You can write in with any questions or comments at the elucidators, all one word at gmail.com, or hit us up on Facebook, because we like to hear from our readers. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you next week, hopefully with co-host Pete back and in one piece. Take care, everybody. Stay cool.